Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. What I am trying to do in each week, the material that we're reading ties in then to a particular philosophical understanding. This week, the one chapter is just state straight up, you know, the, the context of Romans, the universal problem of sin and death, which I'm just saying, okay, this is what the book of Romans is about, which we've done that. My point here, my underlying point, what is taking place in Scripture is something like a kind of unified field theory in physics, a negative unified field theory. I'm, I'm not saying there's not a positive in regard to sin. And maybe sin is already off-putting. You know, maybe, I don't know if that's the, the word. In the modern period that you can trace a series of, of events, you know, what the way that people will tend to talk about modernity, and I'm not denying that we live in a strange period. In other words, I really believe that the way that we experience the world in terms of disenchantment, the world has been emptied out of magic, of spirits, in places like science, especially Newtonian science. Although evolutionary science does a bit of the same thing, but the problem pertains more to the idea of the absolutizing of law. What have we said the problem is in the New Testament that Paul is addressing? That people take the law and that becomes the thing. And we've spread out the notion of law that can refer to the symbolic order, that can refer to the authorities within a culture, or just psychoanalytically, human, what we call the conscience or the superego, or what Paul would call the law of the mind. That law becomes the thing, a kind of reality unto itself, so much so that this displaces God so that there's life in the law. So I've just described the problem. But if you're a little bit familiar with what's happened in modernity, though we're not using that language, my claim is it's the same shift. That what you're getting in Occam, William of Occam, in Duns Scotus, if you are familiar with nominalism. I think nominalism is the way that you often hear, I, I think it's a fairly easy concept to get. It may be a difficult concept to recognize, you know, that, that the universals or, to, and by universals, we mean the essence of things, that the essence of who God is has been emptied out of the world. And this, you know, these guys are Franciscans. They're good, you know, Christians. This is what is called nominalism. And it's in that understanding that, of course, Luther and Calvin are both nominalists. It's not simply a Protestant problem. It was there in Catholicism and a whole stream of Catholicism, but that is the stream of Catholicism that gave birth to the Reformation. And so Luther's doctrines like imputed righteousness, that is a kind of 
sign, uh, I mean, that's like what's taking place in nominalism. In other words, what happens to the individual is not what it's important, but what happens on the law books. On the law books, righteousness has been imputed to you. What's happening theologically is just what's happening across the board philosophically and what's happening culturally. That is that formal structures, language, it is emptied out of things like truth, beauty, goodness, in terms of who God is. The whole focus becomes on the sovereignty of God. And this is just sort of the discussion that I I think we all were weaned in, uh, that I'm afraid sometimes we didn't recognize it. You know, it's always the debate about between Calvinism and Arminianism or between Augustinianism. Well, wait a minute. The problem is that in the way that that's understood in the modern period is in terms of God's sovereignty. And that is that God is the cause. You know, this is what Calvin is so concerned to show. Sovereignty translates into power. That is, we're just talking about raw power, the power of God. What we're describing is not simply a theological or philosophical phenomenon. This is the shift that's taking place in Protestantism. But at the same time, of course, it's taking, it's not just Protestants. It's happening to Catholics, too. And that is that the state, constitutional governments, prior to the modern, if you talked about a king or a ruler, you'd talk about the divine right of kings. And so the king, he ruled in uh, his legitimacy, was thought to come through God. But in the modern period, the idea of power itself is legitimating. And so the state is constituted, and the word constituted here, think constitutions, is a self-constituting body that has the power to make war, which is its legitimacy. Actually, Hobbes is the philosopher who describes this, that it is just a a continual state of nature, and that's the way people are going to begin to talk about it. You know, even if you're a Christian, suddenly what it means to be a Christian has shifted in the modern period. This is the realm in which we're dealing. Levinas, to me, is not a startling figure, but he he says a fairly simple thing, and that is that what we are as human beings is in the face of other people. There is The way that Hegel will talk about this is that we need the recognition of other people to be human. That, I think, is just common sense, that, that what we are as human, it's organic, it's interconnected, it's communal. We're parts of families, we're parts of groups. But suddenly there's a need to say this. And the reason there's the need to say it is because the idea uh, arises of the individual as a, a kind of monad within themselves. And so there's two things that are taking place in the modern period. There's this turn to law and the turn to will, you know, in terms of God, But, of course, God is going to be emptied out of it. And so what we're left with is law and will in terms of states and individuals. And I think this is almost just the way that we've, the world that we experience, the way we experience it, 
Whereas in the pre-modern, everybody, everybody was Christian. In other words, uh, it didn't matter whether you were a follower, an active follower. Yeah, maybe you were a bank robber, but you were a Christian bank robber. Just because the horizon of understanding and meaning, that's what was given to you. But of course, in the modern period, we actually have, you know, this is Charles Taylor's book on the secular and the rise of the secular. That now we actually feel this choice. Oh, do you want to believe in God or do you choose not to believe in God? William James talked about the same thing, you know, that for most of us, this horizon of meaning, you know, it, it, it gives us certain choices. For most of us, being a, a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist, that's not a, an immediate part of our horizon of meaning. It's not an, an act, you know, an, an, a live choice for us. But suddenly in, in the world that we have atheism or belief, Christianity, or many forms of belief, depending, are a possibility. What that means is we've changed up experience, but the, the reality is that even Christians and evangelicals in the States is what I'm thinking here, that we're experiencing the world and we're, we're uh, engaging in practices that are, in, in a sense, atheistic. In other words, that the world has been emptied out. Well, that is not anything apart from what Paul is already describing in regards to the law. I just think that we've aggravated that, and we've come to extremes. And of course, partly you can blame, if that's the right word, Christianity, because there has been this disenchantment of the world. The way that Charles Taylor will talk about this, in the pre-modern period, the people, their sense of the world was never an isolated understanding, but now the notion that with we're enclosed within ourselves, just our basic experience, you know, that, that that's partly good because in the uh, a traditional culture, spirits and demons and even objects could have evil influences, just uh, in, a, in a kind of immediate thing. And that, of course, has been shut down. But at the same time, there is this sensibility that we have, we call individualism, that we often think that's a good thing. And maybe parts of it are good. But of course, the idea is that now the characteristics, and this is already there in Scripture, it's not talked about the way that we talk about it, but, but such concepts as loneliness. I looked up in a psychiatric journal that the term loneliness in English doesn't occur until 1800. That wasn't an understanding they had. Suddenly there is this epidemic of loneliness. And by epidemic, it's killing people. In other words, uh, I can't remember the numbers, but 166,000 people a year are dying of suicide in the United States or of opioid addiction. And they're attributing that then to a kind of plague of loneliness. I'm saying two things. The modern really is different. We really are experiencing the world in a different sense. But that difference is not a completely unique difference. And this is what you'll get. Uh, I use the example of John Milbank. Milbank, I don't know if you've read any of the radical orthodox stuff, but they tend to have their whipping boys. And for Milbank, 
That is Duns Scotus. Duns Scotus, William of Ock, I think they're both Franciscans. And Duns Scotus, of course, poses the idea of the university of being. The idea is that, you know, with Aquinas, you have the analogy of being. The idea is that uh, the analogia entus is that the understanding is that the world is analogous to God, that there's a kind of participatory ontology. And the university of being is that the being of God and the being of the world are all partaking of the same thing. So that we can conclude to God, I mean, this is partly tied into the nature of the apologetic arguments, that we can conclude to the being of God on the basis of the being of the world. That big B, you know, God, is on a continuum with little b, everything else. And, of course, this is partly why Karl Barth is going to say the Antis is the Antichrist. You know, whether he got this history right or not, what he's saying is that National Socialism, Nazi Germany, the rise of uh, theological liberalism, the rise of that philosophical understanding, but also that political understanding, is directly tied into the university of being which is what he really means by the Antis. I think we need to read this history. We need to be familiar with this. The problem with somebody like Milbank, in other words, I think these, people, these figures like Duns Scotus and William of Ockham, I think they're truly important figures that we need to be familiar with. But the, the question is, as to the uniqueness of the modern or the uniqueness of what they're doing. The idea, you know, you have the scenario, if you could smother baby Hitler in his crib, would you do it? The idea is, well, Hitler's the guy. But then maybe you look at it, maybe you smother baby Hitler, and then you get to looking around and you say, well, wait a minute. You know, actually, Hitler was not, there was nothing unusual or unique about Hitler. It was, in fact, he was fairly low. I don't, I don't think anybody's claiming Hitler was a grand intellect. He was a fairly low IQ. He was a failed artist. In fact, there were many German boys in the situation of Adolf Hitler. Maybe we would say, I'm not saying this is true, but maybe we would say, you know, what influenced Hitler was actually his reading of Friedrich Nietzsche. You know, he got a hold of some bad philosophy. He began to think of himself as the Uberman. So maybe we need to smother baby Nietzsche, too. Well, now, wait a minute. Of course, baby Nietzsche is simply a byproduct, and Nietzsche himself, you know, is talking about. In other words, my point here is we have this understanding. I think, partic I think it's a peculiarly modern understanding. There's actually the idea of the great men theory of history. And the idea is that, you know, what makes history are these heroes or these singular individuals. What I've just said about what a human being is, that we're or organically interconnected. I'm not saying there's not geniuses, but in other words, that kind of singular individual that arises apart from over and against a culture, I think, is simply a human impossibility. That we're all nurtured in a particular understanding. And so Milbank, and he quite literally says this, 
that if it were not for that Dun Scotus, that we wouldn't be in this predicament we're in. That's a very modern thing to say. In the previous generation, are you familiar with who Leslie Newbegin was? He was a missiologist. But Leslie Newbegin said the same thing. Open secret? Yeah, the open secret. That's good on this stuff, isn't he? Uh, yeah, the open secret still a good book. He was a missionary in India for like 40 years and came back to England uh, and realized, oh, now you'd have to be a missionary to England because it had gone, you know, it was more or less secular by the time he got back. And Leslie Newbegin says, you know, it's that Rene Descartes. If Rene Descartes had not gone in that warm room on a cold day and said, I think, therefore I am, the modern would not have arisen and we would not be in the predicament that we're in. So we need to, you know, the same spirit of things. Oh, maybe we should smother Dun Scotus or Rene Descartes. My point here is that all of these guys and the, the form of the thought that is being described, I think is on a continuum with the predicament that Paul is describing as the human predicament in the New Testament. You know, what difference does that make? Well, first of all, it's, it's a difference in, in our diagnosis of the problem. That we're going to understand the problem. Yes, we, we do need to assign importance to these thinkers. Yes, that they have been influential. I'm not denying any of the, the ideas of a kind of disenchantment. But what I would deny is that the modern is a period apart, completely separated apart from that period which preceded it or from that human condition that we already have an analysis of in the New Testament. Of course, to just to say, you know, what I've not said and uh, is, oh, well, it's all sin. Well, there's a sense in which that's true, but my point is that this condition is not, you know, when we say sin, sometimes that's too simplistic. This condition, this aggravated condition, I think has become more complicated, more bare in a way, more cruel in the modern period, perhaps, than even when Paul experienced it. I mean, just in terms of body count, the people killed in the 20th century in the name of the nation state, in the name of, you know, power, whether it's fascist power, communist power, I think it is an unfolding of this condition that, yes, I would call it the sin condition, but I think, yeah, well, there is the sense that that, that unfolding condition has been aggravated because it's instituted. It's actually a part of our experience of what we think of as being American or being Mexican, you know, well, we have this constitution that we, and there's, there's new forms of legitimacy that have been established. And so the diagnosis of the problem, I think that we get a deeper diagnosis of the problem. And then also, I think there is an unfolding understanding of what the power of the gospel involves us in, that it actually, we have the capacity to interpret and understand, you know, Milbank's solution, you know, once you say something as simple as, well, it's that Dun Scotus, 
character, or it's that Rene Descartes character. He says, well, let's just go back to medieval society and reestablish the predominance of the church over the state and you know, reestablish a kind of medieval social condition. That's not going to happen. That's not our redemption. And yet that's the redemption that he's hoping for. So I think in this simplified reading of history, there is a simplified diagnosis of how to resolve the problem. It's unrealistic, both in its account of the problem and the solution. How can someone as brilliant as John Milbank be that naive? Milbank is a bit of a conundrum to me. Because when you read him, he, he does say he has brilliant insight. I re, you know, his whole, his, I, I really think that radical orthodoxy was saying something, is saying something significant. But of course, he's saying that is an Anglo-Catholic located in Great Britain, where they still have a queen and they still have a state church. I think that it's a kind of retrograde understanding that I don't know, maybe there's a hardening of the arteries or something. I suppose that was always there, but it's certainly come out more recently. And, and of course, what I'm describing, now, this is true of all these, of all the radical Orthodox guys that I'm familiar with. When they talk about the modern, they talk about the modern as if it is a completely unique period. And so this is the way that Connor Cunningham, in a book that I think is quite insightful quite even even you know kind of ingenious and that is the genealogy of nihilism but the genealogy of nihilism that he traces he pictures it as simply a modern predicament you know not even Jacques Derrida believed that you know I think people often say oh Derrida is simply doing a critique of the modern I think Derrida just sees what he's doing as a critique of the human in other words that's the human condition so I think that that is an error that we're encountering not just in radical orthodoxy, but it, it is a kind of the, the, the one of the key significant movements of the period. And I think the mistake we're describing, you know, I'm, I, I don't know that I've completely worked out the consequences of this. Partly what it does then, the kind of work that I've done, you know, when I began to do this under Cunningham, he didn't understand what I was doing. Because he thought when I would appeal to Anselm of Canterbury, in other words, in radical orthodoxy, there's a, a standard frame uh, that you're, everybody, you know, if you write a dissertation or you write a book, uh, what you'll do, you'll say, okay, here's the modern condition. And then they'll appeal to a pre-modern theologian to correct that condition. And so I was writing, you know, on the, uh, the psychoanalytic thing with Zizek, and then I was, I had a chapter, it's not in there any, anymore, on Anselm of Canterbury. And when I did that, he said, oh, yeah, that's a good idea, because Anselm then will correct this. Well, no, that's not, <laughs> in other words, my, my understanding of Anselm is not that he's a correction to it, but he's a precursor to it. You're saying that radical orthodoxy ain't radical enough. It's not radical enough. They need to just drop the radical and just go with the orthodoxy. I think we need something radical but that ain't it that by the way i think the name was thought up by a publisher to sell books you want to say that everybody is anselm everybody's descartes everybody's william of Ock. in other words outside of christ this is just how human knowledge is structured i think that it may manifest itself 
in an infinite variety of ways. I'm not denying that. But the the thing that is manifest has its root, you know, a, a root cause, a root. What St. Paul calls it in Adam. In Adam. The the problem of Adam, isn't that the isn't that the New Testament? He's saying, okay, we have two examples of the human predicament. One is in Adam and one is in Israel. And what he's saying is it's not simply a Jewish problem, but it's the human problem. Okay, what's the human problem? Well, it's this orientation to the law uh, or an orientation, you know, to death that I think characterizes the turn to sovereignty, the turn to law in a uniquely perverse sense that we have in the modern period. I agree. I think it's a good, I think it's a great, uh, is anybody else saying, is anybody else sort of echoing or doing what you're saying here? I'm all alone in the world, man. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I do like it. I do. I, I, you're just talking about the secular. And if, if, if you mean thinking outside of, uh, I don't know. Is that, I don't want to speak for you, but is that what you mean by, so are you saying that in some way uh, Anselm is, is failing to think Christianly or, or Descartes is failing to think Christianly or need whoever else and that this failure manifests itself in uh, the secular, which manifests itself in things like, you know, the nation state war, death. Yeah. There's, there's never a mystery. You know, if you want to say what is perverse, it's violent. It always gives rise to violence. And we're in, I think, one of the most potentially, I mean, we're in world destruction kind of violence right now, that the whole thing is, may blow up on us. But I think that that's connected to an ideology. Yeah, yeah. I just saw that the Mexican government is suing the United States major, like the six major uh, gun manufacturers, because something like 90% of the guns that are confiscated by the federales you know are have an origin in the united states they've been smuggled from the united states i, I guess that's just to say that i mean I, I guess i'm trying to track with what you're saying and what, what Milbank is saying because if what Milbank is saying is something like yeah we just need a christian you know queen uh we just need a christian society isn't that the isn't that what has given birth isn't christendom isn't it christendom that has given birth to the situation the modern situation that we find ourselves in isn't that why god has left the building i think that's it it is not a critique of christendom uh it is an a re-embracing of christendom yeah uh with its violence in other words none of these guys can be pacifists because they're going to have to align the church and state they're going to have to admit to the necessity of violence and that's going to be at the core of what they're doing let me say two things i was trying to find a book and Matt, maybe you remember the book. I don't know. You know, when I was doing the stuff on uh, Rene Descartes, and I think the guy's name was Stephen Williams, and he wrote, it's just a little thin book, you know, and he's critiquing this idea. There was a time when everybody said, people still say that Descartes is the father of modernity. And they say, well, that darn Descartes. And so what Williams does is to place Descartes in the sociological context of his time. And of course, that's what needs to happen, that Descartes is himself a byproduct of the world in which he lived. I, I think that's almost an obvious necessity. In other words, what we're doing when we're in a class like this talking about philosophy, 
are we saying, oh boy, these philosophers are really powerful people? Or are we saying that, well, not exactly that, but these philosophers are articulating an understanding that is pervasive. They're not necessarily generating this understanding. They may be partly, you know, it's always unclear how much they, they're arising in a particular context because that's the place they are. So I always uh, thought it was different. I always thought it was different. Because, and actually, you said something many years ago in one of our classes. You said, if you don't do the thinking, somebody will do the thinking for you. And you said that these powerful thinkers do, in fact, have power. And they do take the lead, you know, just like we have musicians who kind of set the standard and set the trend and sort of, you know, pop culture, artistic expression, cinematic or otherwise, that there really are brilliant minds. Uh, this is the power of thinking who who can, in fact, sort of, and now they're both a product of their time and place and language and context and all that. But th because they're particularly brilliant, that they really are articulating, you know, may maybe even, uh, maybe it is something that's already been said. Maybe there's nothing new under the sun, you know, in that regard. But it does seem like some of these powerful thinkers, Nietzsche comes to mind, you know, others have really been like, you know, Hegel are like world historical thinkers, <laughs> you know, that, that really have given rise then to all sorts of new thinkers and schools of thought who then have the power in academic you know, context and in schools and institutions and et cetera, that end up influencing and making the world what it is. And isn't, and aren't we saying as Christians that we can reshape, we can reshape the world as the hope. Let me agree with you and disagree. Do you guys remember the movie back to the future? It's literally my favorite movie of the eighties. And so in the movie, you know, the, the kids get up there doing the modern music, you know, and the, and then at the end, they start smashing their guitars. The crowd just stands there stunned because it's just insanity. That doesn't mean anything. Who's the, what's the, the actor's name? He said, well, you're not ready for this yet. Michael Jackson, but, yeah. you, kids, but you kids are going to love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's Michael J. Fox. Michael J. Fox, yeah. yeah. Uh, think about somebody like Hegel. Oh, people were actually reading Hegel and Schelling. Think about Nietzsche. Nietzsche was uh, selling books. He was, he was a, a famous writer. In other words, there is the sense, yes, these guys are at the cutting edge of what they're doing, but it's also true that there is an audience there. There are people there that are receiving, and the fact that those two things come together is the spirit of the age, You know that, that they're all a part of a similar understanding. I would say even the same thing about Soren Kierkegaard. You know, we often think of lonely Kierkegaard, you know, writing. Well, actually, Kierkegaard was, was pretty famous in, in, uh, in Denmark. But he hobnobbed with the king. These figures, yes, they arise. I think we tend to think of them as these isolated geniuses. Maybe that's a possibility. There are these people that just appear. But I would say that so that there is a dialectic that is occurring. Same thing in Japan. I'm thinking of a guy named Takeo Doi, who writes the book on Amai, you know, the anatomy of dependence. It's the best-selling book in Japan explaining to Japanese what it means to be Japanese. 
okay, what is happening in that? And there's a whole genre of literature, Nihon Jin Ro. It's widely read literature that resonates with Japanese. It seems to be true. But at the same time, it's informing them what it means to be Japanese. What I'm partly saying here, this, there is something that's taking place that, yeah, there's kind of a dialectic that happens. And sometimes it's hard to say, you know, whether the cart comes before the horse or vice versa. But the great man idea, I, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of have a little something. I don't know where to, where to take this or where I don't want to take us too far off topic. But it does kind of, um, it, it reminds me of the conversation that you and I have been having lately. You know, you said the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist. You know, we've been talking about Joe Hill, you know, the union organizer and his, uh, you know, the union folks that would follow him. With, like their slogan was, he ain't dead. You know, Joe Hill ain't dead. We, he lives through us. We were talking about how that works in our anthropology and it's when it comes to sociology. And we were talking about the context of the Holy Spirit. And how the Holy Spirit might differ and manifest itself in history. And again, I don't want to go too far off topic, but I guess it does make me think, Paul, that in the New Testament, what is being addressed there, I think, often, you know, especially in Paul, are the powers, are the spirits of the age, are the, you know, the, these angelic principalities and powers that Paul is saying influence our world, that they influence nations, they influence even Israel, politics. That's, this is, you know, Hart's contention is kind of a provocative thing, but he said that he would just sum up St. Paul's, God, that like the main thing that St. Paul is saying is that the angelic powers have been dethroned and now Christ rules over all. Like he thinks that that's like an adequate, you know, kind of at least one way to summarize what St. Paul is saying. And it's kind of interesting because you're saying, yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a dialectic, that there is this zeitgeist and that you kind of catch the spirit of the age and maybe you put your movie out at just the right time precisely because it, it kind of catches that zeitgeist. There's something about it, a genesis qua or whatever, that you, that you just sort of put it out at the right time and it just sort of caught the spirit of the age. But it's like, but what is that kind of like mysterious spirit of the age, you know, that's being articulated? through these powerful forces in academia, in philosophy, minds that haven't been shaped by Christ, minds that, that, that may in fact be under, be under, you know, the Paul talks about, you know, the God of this age has blinded their, their eye, you know, their mind, their, their eyes, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's an interesting way. And again, I think the reason why I'm bringing this up is because it's a decidedly sort of pre-modern view of things, that the spiritual forces that surround us and I, you said something earlier that I was, I, you know, said, well, I don't know if I believe that. You know, you said, well, we, uh, you know, no one believes that uh, objects, you know, can, they're spiritual. I, I don't want to misquote you, but it does. Malevolence. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but even in objects, and it's like, well, no, that's not, that's not entirely the case for many people where we say, no, actually there's holy water and there's crosses and, uh, you know, there's icons, whatever. There's other things that, that actually do have, um, spiritual sort of um, significance or maybe even power like associated with them. But, and I think that I'm just saying all this because it's a very pre-modern way to talk about what the world really is. And that is, is that there really is a spirit of the age, that there really is a, a spirit apart from Christ that, um, that really is an anti-Christian sort of philosophy. I, I'm not, I know that that's not what you're, you're not like, you know, wanting to say 
oh, these guys are all demonic or something like that. We're, we're, the whole point of the class is to say that we want to both have a charitable and critical reading of philosophy. But I guess it's an interesting way to talk about with the forthcoming class on the Holy Spirit. Has the history of philosophy then been a manifestation of a particular spirit? I like where you're going with that. The question here about the satanic, the diabolical aspect, I don't mean to downplay that, but Paul actually in Romans 7, I think this ties into what you're describing, Matt. He's describing the work of the serpent without referencing the serpent, right? He just calls it sin. Sin deceived me. I'm never quite sure how to describe the spirit of the age or this thing that grips us. Because I think that, as Paul does, if he said, well, it was that snake, well, even for his contemporaries, that's not exactly the way it works. This thing gets a grip on us, and it may go under the name of spirit. It may go under the name of nation-state. It may go under the name of communism or, or atheism or Christianity, evangelicalism. Trumpism, discerning how sin deceives us, because sin deceives. I think there is a a universal form in which it deceives, and I think that's what we're describing, that this thing gets a grip on us. It may manifest itself in, I mean, the serpent is sneaky, (laughs) and it can appear in many forms. It can transform itself. N.T. Wright says it's subpersonal. Maybe that's it, that it's not, it's not fully, a, you know, I don't know. But the point is, I think that in the New Testament, and especially in the modern age, that we do need to be able to put our finger on the spirit of the age and at the same time tie it back and say, but it nonetheless is a manifestation of the same form of deception. I guess I just don't have any problem with saying that Satan is behind Trumpism. (laughs) Like, I I don't know how, as a Christian who believes in the reality of spiritual malevolent beings and, you know, benevolent beings that we call angels, to me, clearly Hitler was uh, demonically. This is, again, maybe this is sort of a silly, or someone could say, oh, that's naive, or that's, we know better now. We have technology or, or whatever. Well, as a, Christian, as a Christian, I just don't have those commitments. Like, I actually believe in angels and demons and uh, the spiritual warfare that all of us have to fight all the time. I think that you're right that these things obviously manifest themselves in history through these particular ideologies, communism, fascism, Trumpism, whatever. I just think that there's, just like behind the spirit of the church, again, I'm thinking of our next class, that, well, well okay, the Holy Spirit is what's prompting this discussion hopefully you know the holy spirit is what's prompting this work that we're doing in the in the you know the churches etc okay i guess i'm just willing to say that and likewise in the secular in the world apart from christ that there is a there is a malevolent you know spirit that again saint paul over and over again is is saying has been defeated by christ but that nonetheless seems to have its grip i actually like that that image because that's what the snake does right that's what the python does is you know he squeezes the life out of its victim and maybe that's a way that it wouldn't be popular in the academy or whatever they would say oh yeah you know there's a demon behind the door he's actually pulling the strings like the wizard of oz or whatever and it's like okay i mean that that kind of 
dismissal is like not really all that helpful, I don't think, because it's only in the modern period that we've begun to think of the world in pure materialistic terms. It's a relatively new phenomenon. It's not how even the ancient Greek, you know, Plato, whatever, thought about the world. And so I guess I'm just saying that to imagine that we come up with all this stuff on our own, whether Christian or not, I think is to be kind of like arrogant almost. But again, I'm coming from a very specifically kind of Christian understanding of that, that we really do enter, we inhabit a world that is enchanted by both malevolent and benevolent spirits who do in fact direct the course of you would now call like secular history. You know, I think that the gates of hell don't move. You know, gates don't move. Gates don't do anything. They just hold down the fort, but that they don't prevail. So in other words, the gospel is going to scale the walls and overcome the gates of hell. And I think ultimately you destroy and annihilate it because of the victory of Christ. But we're still in this age. I'm not disagreeing with you here, but what maybe what I'm about to say sounds like it. Partly what I'm saying is that we express ourselves through the idiom and metaphor of the culture of which we're a part. And we think in those forms. To be able to identify the spirit of the age is to be able to speak that idiom and understand how it functions. And it's probably not helpful to club the idiom of one culture with that of another. That is that evil, yeah, evil's always evil. I don't know if I ever had this conversation with Lukma. If I didn't, it was always in a mad, it was a conversation I thought I should have had. Lukma would say, you know, in Haiti, in Haiti, they're really caught up in voodoo and demons and all of that. But can we identify the evil in Haiti through Papa Doc and Baby Doc and Aristide and through this series of malevolent dictators? that have exercised and destroyed that country from its inception. In other words, I'm afraid that sometimes the discussion about the demons, and it's not that I'm denying this, I'm just saying that it can be a distraction. It's the wrong idiom. It's going to displace, it's going to draw our attention from the real evil in putting our finger on something like Trumpism. I mean, that's not how St. Paul talked, but, you know, I, 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 Paul didn't have any problem with saying it was both. I think that, of course, Papa Doc and uh, Museveni in Uganda and, and wherever else, it's like, of course, we can say this is evil. These are evil manifestations. But we would also say, and the powers that stand behind this sort of malevolence, malevolence uh, in this, it's, um, it's founded in kind of like the dark spiritual Paul says it explicitly he says our battle is not against flesh and blood but against the powers against the you know the the you know the angels <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah and so I, I all I'm saying is I, I agree I think that that's right I think that we have to we have to run the risk of people saying oh that's the wrong idiom but of course the Christian idiom is 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 foreign it's weird it's it's uh it's peculiar. We're, but we're also saying it's true that we're narrating the world. We're, we have actually access to information that other people don't have, <laughs> and that is is that Christ is Lord, and He's quite and he's, he's defeated these spiritual powers that reign over the you know misery of uh, human beings. And I think that as Paul is naming the powers, he's also describing the way that they work, right? And that's all I'm saying is, well, actually, whatever that serpent is. 
the dynamic of its work is still in play. The law that is established in the knowledge of good and evil that displaces God, the lie, you won't die, that dynamic is all in play. So when we talk about serpent power, or we talk about the, the deception of sin, the malevolent forces, the spirits, uh, spirit of the age, it's not enough to, to name it, but it's, we have to describe it. And the way in which we're going to describe it is to be able to understand how it's at work right in front of us. That's the problem of my neighbors here. You know, they just hauled off another, that's a crude way of talking about uh, one of my teachers, one of the teachers at the high school here died. He was a member of Timberlake, refused to get the vaccine. I have no idea why he did, but you can imagine why he did. This thing is death dealing. But the way in which it's death dealing, the danger is that we'll, we won't recognize it. We're not geared to, to recognizing the devil that's right before us. And I think we, can, we need to continually be aware of how this thing is at work all around us, how it's at work within us and at work in the culture of which we're a part, because it's always at work. That is the kingdom of Satan. But Satan, I think we should say that. We should say that. We should name it. We should say, oh, yeah, you know, that's the satanic kingdom. So whenever Trump is up there with his, you know, hatred and division and, you know, uh, convincing people to not get the vaccine for political reasons that results in like 600,000 American deaths, then we can say they're just like the Christians of old to say there is the Satan. There is the evil empire. There it is. There he's speaking. He's the blasphemous. You know, he's speaking right now. So, like, I, I think that I'm, I'm with you, but I also want to, because I do think that on the ground level, people are like, whether it's the idiom or the or the folklore or whatever, that people are like open to the fact that, like, I don't know, man, this world's pretty messed up. Maybe there is actually like a sort of a dark power, <laughs> and say, yeah, there are. Look, turn on Fox News. <laughs> You know, they're going to be like telling you what their what their ideology is. You know, and I, maybe it's off talking topic, but I think that we're making a, a bold claim as, as Christians. We're saying if Nietzsche or whoever else, there's some stuff I like about Nietzsche, but whoever, you know, if they, but if they're, if they're preaching a gospel that's foreign to, you know, or contrary to the gospel of Christ, it's demonic. Yeah, it is the Antichrist, and, and we need to be able to name it. Nietzsche didn't hesitate to call himself the Antichrist. But uh, unfortunately, I think he made the mistake that we're describing. He confused Lutheran understanding of the New Testament with Christianity and thus pitted himself against that. Well, I'm also against that. What we're describing is actually the work of Dun Scotus, it's Occam, it's the, the nominalism, in other words, Nietzsche is pronouncing it's just an army of metaphors, and he's right that he's named the spirit of the age. We can read Nietzsche and recognize, oh, he's done a very Christian thing for us, in that he's put his finger upon this, the thing that has a grip on all of his neighbors and is going to unfold in Europe. That is the power, you know, that, that is, in a sense, he's kind of the precursor to the, the linguistic philosophers, the turn, the turn to language. As a philologist, he's recognizing 
oh, we're just doing grammar here. That is nominalism. That is the Lutheranism. That is, I hesitate to say, Protestantism. But maybe it is, you know, maybe that, that it's all infected with this understanding. And it's no easy thing to get a grip on it. I, I know that because I've been trained in such a way that I would be blinded to it. In other words, this is the schooling. We're actually schooled in blindness. And so to, to be able to name it is no, it's not saying, well, the devil made me do it. Uh, yeah, maybe the devil did make you do it, but he did it through the influences that were exercised in our particular moment. I think we're in agreement. Yeah, no, I, I think we're definitely in agreement. I think we're, we're, we're both saying an important thing, and that is, is that neither one of us are materialists. We think that evil really does manifest itself in real people doing real bad stuff. But we're also saying, I think, that, you know, the devil did make me do it. You know, it's like the devil is the father of sin. He is the father of lies. He really does deceive us. He really does try to, uh, you know, influence us to hurt other people and to hurt ourselves and to hate ourselves and to... But hey, God, I think it's kind of a cool way of looking at things. You know what I mean? Of saying, you know, know your enemy. And then you, maybe you can feel him, you know, in your heart, but you can also see him on TV or whatever. You can see him in, in you know, hurting other people with, with lies, you know? And then that's kind of like the world we live in. But that, that Christ has, you know, defeated Trump and has defeated uh, the drug cartels. And he's defeated, uh, you know, the Satan with all of his angels. And so, like, that's the Christian cosmic vision, I think. It's both, it's angelic, it's the God, you know, it's mankind, it's the cosmo. As I'm describing this, I wanted to critique me. Is there a danger? Oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> it's my favorite part of the show. <laughs> and that is that as I'm saying this, at least with somebody like Milbank, he's saying, well, what we've got to do, he's got a plan. He's got a political plan. He's engaged in the details of, I suppose, I don't know how much he's engaged. But anyway, is there the danger in what I'm describing, and I'm acknowledging this, that we're picturing this power as greater than that it has a grip on us, and the only way that we can check out of it? I, I think ultimately, you know, I, I'm in agreement with Zizek, that what does Christianity do for you? What, how does it save you? Well, I think the key way is that it gets rid of that obscene superego supplement. It gets rid of the obscenity of the law. And that's the only way that we're enabled, you know, his part of the powerful part of agape love is left out. But I think we can go on to say that we're enabled to have this thing that, in fact, is the fulfillment of the law. That is agape love. That is, we're enabled to love our neighbor. But the critique that might be brought against this is that it's a kind of checking out, you know, just writing off the powers and imagining that our influence, you know, at Milbank, when, you know, what is, in the end, what is somebody like Milbank doing? Well, he wrote his book, Beyond the Secular. And I guess that now if we all read his book and work out the arcane details of his understanding, that we'll be saved from the secular. In other words, yes, ideas are powerful, but I, I think that he's missing the point. There is the sense that we have to entrust ourselves to the power of God, and that ultimately, 
yes, we participate in this thing. We're giving voice as conduits to the gospel. But in the end, our part in this is simply that. We're all just foot soldiers. Is there a kind of Amish part to what I'm saying? And I've described the power so well and the malevolent forces as so powerful. We've created a small space for ourselves. I just can't think of, I can't help but to think of the gospel of John. The whole thing is a demonic exorcism. There's no story of an exorcism. The whole gospel is an exorcism. Just there's no recounting of the transfiguration, which the Orthodox celebrate tomorrow, uh, because the whole gospel of John is a illustration of the transfiguration. And Jesus yeah, is saying uh, that Satan has, isn't that the message of John? It's like, in other words, like that's a big part of the gospel of John is that Satan has been defeated. It's actually really great. It's great that these dark powers that have ruled over mankind, me, me personally, I think that they're only defeated in and through the church. I mean, they may be in some way held back in the world that evil, although the 20th century may militate against that, you know, that not sure how evil was held back by the, but I think that in my own life, for instance, like Satan hopefully is being defeated in the, in the life of the Christian, the follower of Christ that like the, the these um, deceptive death dealing lies to participate in these false. I mean, my good friend of mine and I were just talking about how with the, you know, the Trumpism and the QAnon stuff, you know, you have family members and it's, and there's a lot it's it, that, that are like, that are choosing sort of like a guy that they've never met that they've never talked to that, you know, the guy wouldn't probably uh, even acknowledge them or he would probably even exploit them if he was their worker or whatever. Not, this is going on in all sorts of different, I think, Christian families with this stuff is that like choices are being made, you know what I mean? To like not even talk to your family because you have political commitments uh, to like a lying death dealing, like megalomaniac or whatever. It's like, it's a very confusing time. And what I'm saying and what's saying all that is, is that I think that there are spiritual forces involved with that too, that we can be taken captive by ideology, that we can be taken captive by addiction and pornography or whatever, like there's sin and death and, and power and money and fame and all this other stuff that can like, that is seeking to like master us on a spiritual level. And it, and it has like actually mastered most of us. You know, I guess I would say that we are kind of like victims um, of powers that are more powerful than, than we are. You know, ideological powers, economic powers, um, institutional powers, educational powers, you know, crime, the powers of crime. You know, like we're all thrown into this world where we're up against like these unimaginable uh, sort of forces that are against us you know and like the flesh the world and the devil kind of thing it's like boy it doesn't get much harder than that (laughs) you know the body the whole world and the devil is like they're all against us you know that's what the new testament says you know and so i think that it does it manifests itself in those three ways it's what paul you're doing in your book it's the flesh it's the body of death it's the mm-hmm. world. It's Papa Doc and, and Museveni and who and Trump and whoever else. And it's the devil. I think that we're saying all three things because it's a holistic vision of the you know the coherence of God's created order and sort of like the evil forces of anti creation that are that are at work in it. I absolutely agree. Yeah, it's not saying this that uh, yeah. I mean, we are 
victims of this whole thing, but we also participate in it and we victimize others. Yes. So at some point, we, we're, not, we're not only just victims. Yes. So like what I was saying on the, on the verse that I put on the chat that, you know, I think Jesus clearly said that we're either working with him to restore everything or we become the oppressors. We become the destroyers. And I think even Paul in Romans, his whole argument begins with that idea. You know, we exchange God's glory for ourselves, uh, our selfishness. And he continues to narrate how, how you know, the, the less glory we give to God, everything else is going in a path to, to destruction. Eventually, you know, Romans 8 and then Romans 16 at the very end, you know. The glory of God is, is restored in creation, but the I, the selfishness of Romans 7 has to, has to die in order for that to happen. And in both things, we participate. Like we either join God in the whole restoration business, or we're joining the spirit of the age in the, the you know, destruction business. We start as victims, I, I would say, because at a young age, we, you know, we might not notice this, but I think that at some point, we stop being victims and we become the, uh, the oppressors too. We start victimizing others. It's the Bob Dylan song, who are you going to serve? No, I like that. I like that. I guess, yeah, I, I don't want to only be a victim. I just, you know what I mean? I, I think that we're actually uh, more than conquerors too in Christ, like it says in Romans 8. I think, Alan, it's a good it's a good reminder that this thing isn't just out there somewhere, but all this, the stuff that we're talking about, a fallen understanding of things, the demonic or whatever, or the angelic, you know, uh, whatever, all these different things, like they run right through the heart of us, too. And the, the things that defile us are the things that come out of our mouth, you know, the things that come out of our heart that I do think can be influenced by both our own sort of, like Alan saying, our own sort of sinful desires and you know, the desires of um, the Lord of this world who would want to just use us, like Paul was saying, as sort of conduits, you know, to his to his will being done. And so I think that to bring it full circle, like, isn't that the history of thought? You know what I mean? That these guys might be reading and they might be writing their stuff in a, in a warmly, you know, by a fireplace or whatever. But if their thoughts are, if they don't have the mind of Christ, that necessarily is going to lead to sort of a probably death. You know, probably like destruction, probably I, Paul summed it up really well the other day when he said that bad theology is ideology. That's a great, like succinct way of saying that our, I mean, maybe Paul, is it too, is it too bold to say? And I think that maybe this is the conversation of history of the history of philosophy and of this class, but is philosophy then is what you would want to say is that like philosophy is a failure of <laughs> maybe that's too maybe that's too stark the philosophy is a failure of theology or that the ideology that philosophy gives us is due to a failed theology in the in my blog i quote carl schmidt is it that he's the nazi jurist and that's what he's saying about the whole structures of modern society is that it's all theological categories emptied out of god I think he's right that he, he has insight that the state has become the church, the laws of the land, the constitution have become the commands of God. The decisionism of the individual, you know, in ethics, it's all decisionism, has become our ethical imperative. 
uh, you're, you were saying that philosophy is a, a kind of failed theology. The point is that with some of these guys, it's no longer clear, especially by the time we get to Hegel, it's not clear what, what we're doing anymore. Are we doing psychology? Is it, it, it is a kind of theology. Yeah, is metaphysics, this is like the thing, is it metaphysics? And metaphysics, do you mean God? What do you mean? And that, that's the, the idea that law, you know, this whole thing becomes its own kind of entity that takes the place of an ontology. The dialectic is the law, is the thing. The language of the dialectic is the essence of things. Yeah, you're you're right. I, this is what I, I'm always thinking about philosophy: is that you would find the truth in language. Well, I mean, I mean that sounds like a kind of idiotic statement at some level. Well, of course that's what you're doing. But what I mean by that is that there is never what takes place with somebody like Wittgenstein who steps back and says, "Well, wait a minute. Language is not a way of climbing out of the world. That language is embodied." I think that simple Wittgensteinian move is is what's missing in so much of the history of philosophy. I think it's even missing, you know, by the time we get to Heidegger. It's still, they're still doing, Heidegger's still dwelling in the house of language, language per se. He's more aware of this, but nonetheless, he's still, I think he's still playing the same game. And so another way of saying that is there's life in the law. There's life in language per se. This is where my understanding breaks down, I think, a little bit, because I don't. So whenever John was talking about nominalism, I had the same thought. I said, OK, if there's no actually existing categories like, you know, the beautiful or the true or the good. Like in other words, like the transcendence are not actual things. It's just ways of describing. Well, that's just language. Right. We just said, oh, they're just words. You know, they're just they're just words that help us to sort of. And so in that sense, aren't the nominalists doing exactly what you just described? By imagining that we, ha- you know, that it's it's in the house of language and in, in the house of language alone that we can apprehend the truth. Yeah, yeah. Or am I misunderstanding? Or am I misunderstanding? I'm open here. I don't. I I've never quite understood. You know, Wittgenstein sort of the the grand point there. I, I think I just haven't. It's been elusive to me. Uh, yeah, I don't make it more than it is because what typically happens, Platonism is the idea that there, there's these universal forms up there somewhere, and that the forms then, that things just emanate from the forms, that there is a kind of grasping after these forms through language. Anselm makes this all very understandable, that he just wants to take the word and follow the word uh, unthreaded until you get to its core, and when you get to its core, the place of language, you've arrived at God. Literally, he says, you know, we we have to follow the word of that we have, our place of language, and then we arrive at the word of God. That's pure Platonism, I think, or at least it's it's Neoplatonism or whatever you want to call it. I'm never real concerned if he's true to Plato because uh, I assume that he is, but but I just but think that that's class. That's why this is important. To me, that this is part of this class, because so far, I kind of like what you just described as Neoplatonism, but you said it pejoratively. Yeah, because the, the idea is that all, all I need is my own. In other words, it's a complete interiority. It's just I turn inward. I close the door of my mind and shut out everything, and I come to this singular word, 
not a multiplicity of words. Well, wait a minute, if it's a singular word, it ain't saying nothing. It's just om. It's just, a, uh, it, and that's the way he, I think he means it as an experiential reality that is, even though he's talking about the role of language, he's actually displacing any ordinary understanding of language so that you come to the, that thing that transcends language. And I think the Wittgensteinian part of this is to say, well, wait a minute, all we have, we're, we're finite, and the language we have is a part of that finite embodied condition. And to imagine that language can transport you elsewhere is already a misunderstanding of the way that language is tied into the embodied world. And of course, the Christian uh, idea here is we need the incarnation of the word because that's the way that the only way that we have words is in an incarnate condition. Words don't take us to the disincarnate because they themselves are of the flesh. Now that's good, but but here's the thing. I guess I would want to I would want to ask. So like Om is a good as you know like Vedic word, you know Hindu word. Uh, but I think that what they're doing there is precisely to get beyond the confine of language to, because words are sort of, uh, you know, maybe they're an obstacle to truly understanding in this Wittgensteinian sense that that language, you know, per se or words, that, that this is like the ineffable, that at some point words fall short, the house of language just falls short and being able to describe the grandeur and glory of God and certainly to participate in God is more than to just talk about it. So that Om, or maybe in the Eastern Orthodox Church, it's the Jesus prayer, that you limit the words, that Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, the sinner, is a way to clear yourself, you know, out of all the other words, so that you just have the Lord, you know, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, the sinner, words. Because the other, you know, it's, at, it's sort of an obstruction, you know, because of exactly what you're describing. Is the word an obstruction to our apprehension of god isn't that what uh, wittgenstein is saying no because, Why? because he's saying that no what well, the only thing we have is language and language doesn't take us out of the world it it is tied to the world the to imagine that you can climb the stairs of language and kick the ladder from out from under you that's the lie uh-huh. That's the dialectic. That's the, you know, it, it, it's a turn to the experiential as over and against language. I have no problem with experience. It's not that. It's that the experiential is traded for the incarnational and the word. So what the, the significance of Wittgenstein is just to say we're finite and language is finite. But luckily, we have a word from God, because we're not up to apprehending God in the disincarnate way, because we are bodies, and language is embodied. But God has spoken, and that's the good news of the gospel. In other words, what the Indian pursuit beyond the personal, a dissolving of the individual in the sheet of philosophy the dialectic then between Satan and God, he says, I am Satan and God, but I'm greater than both because I can transcend both. And the way you transcend is you escape those categories. In other words, all the categories are erased. All the words are erased in this moment of enlightenment in which you have an experience 
in which all that the Buddha can do, he can no longer say anything. He just rolls the flower in his hand. And if you look at him correctly, you too can achieve enlightenment. Yeah, the lotus. Yeah. Well, but I, I like the way that you're telling the story. You think I'm wrong? <laughs> no, I, I like the way that you're, yeah, that's fun. It's, you know, I noticed like this is what's happening, I think, in like sort of postmodern theology is that anytime I read a blog, it's like the writer is telling a story about how things really are. You, you know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, here's my version of the story. You know, there once was a Nazi and he was a, alienated self. Uh, you know, it's just kind of an interesting way to kind of, talk, you know, the, the, this is, the, I don't think that we did theology this way, did we? Before like the postmodern period, I don't think that we told stories, but I like it. So I like, I like what your, you know, your version to make your point. I'm wondering if there's maybe a, a little bit more to it because I, 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 you know, so John said something important that, well, the last time we were talking about nominalism and I brought this up in our class on the other day on Tuesday is that he said, well, you understand that God is also beyond the beautiful and the good and the true. God is beyond, you know, the, he's, he's not, we can't like encapsulate or in some way apprehend or comprehend God in it through language or those conceptual categories. So I think that that's a very, I think that that's a very good point, you know, that there is language really is limited. We don't, we don't, you know, God is beyond our ability to articulate. And I just thought that that's what, you know, is happening with some of this Indian philosophy is that they're saying, you don't even need the Vedas, actually. Once you learn the scriptures and the Vedas and you're taught, you know, the path of enlightenment, Vedas will just confirm your experience. They're not, it's not that they're proscriptive, but they're prescriptive, they're descriptive, that, that, that you, you can do this thing and that you don't need words to describe it. Yeah, I assume that's, that's what... Uh, there's a saying in uh, uh, Buddhism: If you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. <laughs> what is that? That sounds like something Zizek would say. <laughs> well, no, it's the idea is well, you don't need the Buddha; you just need. Well, the why Buddha. would you kill? Him? Why can't you just walk right by him? Why you got to kill him? <laughs> I don't know. That seems extreme. Seems like an overreaction. The idea is that, in as much as we're dependent on the categories of the mind. We need to rid ourselves of those things. But my point is, well, no, what you're trying to do is be God. We're not God. We're human. I don't know if you've noticed. But what we would all like to do is be God. And the way we would be God is not to be human. Well, see, I would agree with everything that you said, except for the very last way that you put it. And um, what God has done is say, no, the way that you be God is you become human. If you want to participate in deity, follow my son, who is human. I guess I would want to agree with everything that you said, except for that the reason why we want to be God is because that's what we were created to do. The idea is that there is the satanic move that we can be gods without God. Right. And right. I, I think that's the impetus. In other words, right. Buddhism and, uh, is truly an atheism. Supposedly. I mean, that's what, yeah. that's Depending on what you mean. But the idea is that there really is the experience of deity within the self that exceeds everything outside of the self. That's yeah, that's that's Indian philosophy. And then there is the wiping out of all the normal categories of the world, including language. Yeah. The Wittgensteinian point is first of all, that's not possible. That's a game you can play, and it's a game that people want to play. You know, the way it gets played in philosophy is we hold up our hand and say, Is this my hand? What you're doing in Buddhism, you look at the body and you say, is this me? 
And the answer is no. But the biblical answer, I think, is yes. That's you. That is that God comes to us embodied. And resurrection is salvation that is embodied. That our salvation systems are disembodied. They're killing. They're deathly. They're violent. Because they would put away the body. Great. All right, Matt. Good job. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.